0: Welcome to the Spit It Out podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Avi Robbins. We're bringing you engaging discussions with thought leaders from academia and industry as we explore everything from what's in your saliva to why it's a good indicator of your overall health. Join us as we raise awareness around what saliva can tell us, why it's important for the future of healthcare, and what some really awesome people are doing about it today. Today we're talking with Dr. Ann Wiley, a microbiology expert at the Yale School of Public Health and the founder of the Saliva Direct Initiative. She's been working on saliva as a diagnostic tool for the last decade, and the Saliva Direct assay was one of the first saliva tests to be granted emergency authorization by the FDA for SARS-CoV-2 detection. Since then, Dr. Wiley has been pushing to provide testing to the masses by offering this test as an open source protocol and collaborating with over 180 labs in the US and at least 12 countries internationally, all in an effort to promote equitable and accessible testing. Welcome, Dr. Ann Wiley. I'm certainly excited to be talking to you today as both an admired colleague and a respected friend. I think our listeners will be fascinated and inspired by your story.
1: Thanks, Avi, and thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this great initiative.
0: Anne, the way you approached EUA submissions was rather unique. I mentioned before that you went with an open source protocol. And although Yale School of Public Health is technically the manufacturer of this assay, you manufacture nothing at all. Why was this open source approach important to you?
1: Well, from the early days of the pandemic, we witnessed and even experienced firsthand the hurdles to testing. And more importantly, the hurdles people were experiencing to access testing. While those who had symptoms mostly could get tested, for others with exposures or at high risk, it was generally only those who could afford to get testing. And with testing demand high, prices went up, leaving testing inaccessible to many. Working with many of the same reagents in our lab, we knew that the cost of testing didn't have to be so high. We were therefore determined to make a lower cost option available. After discovering that you could test saliva pretty much directly with the PCR test, therefore removing the high cost and time required for RNA extraction, Our goal was to make the test as easy as possible for the labs to implement, to minimize the risk of disruption due to supply chain shortages, and to keep competition between suppliers to keep prices down. For this, we validated a number of reagents and instruments for each step of the process, and we have continued to do this over the past two years. If a lab comes to us with an instrument that is not yet part of our protocol, or if they find a cheaper reagent, we'll do all the necessary studies to add it to our protocol to save them the cost of having to buy new instrumentation or to make their overall test price cheaper.
0: Can you tell us how you went about getting this unique emergency use authorization through?
1: Sure. Well, as an academic research lab, we were not actually able to perform clinical diagnostic testing per the FDA regulations ourselves, nor did we really have the means to carry out the high throughput testing required during large outbreaks. So we had to find a way to make this test available to labs around the country and to help them implement this low cost community testing solution. We just simply took this idea to the FDA and fortunately they just saw the potential for it. We were indeed issued our EUA as a manufacturer, but as you said, we do not manufacture or distribute Distribute anything other than the protocol itself. We wanted the labs to go directly to their suppliers as that would help them to get the best prices to help keep the prices low and to keep their testing programs more sustainable.
0: Yeah, really an innovative approach. Uh, What do you see as the future for, for open source protocols such as this one?
1: I definitely see a lot of potential in it. And while few, there have been some others who have been trying to work with the FDA on a similar approach. And I really do hope it is one that they will consider going forward. So having performed all that upfront validation ourselves, it means that the time that it takes labs to implement it is much shorter, meaning that they can offer testing much sooner. And we've seen that, especially during some surges or when... Supplies have fallen into, well, short supply. Labs have come to us and they've recognized that all they need to do is provide very short, very basic validation data to us to show that they've implemented it correctly. And then they can just test almost immediately using the reagents they already have in this. And so with this approach, it means that we're also collecting test data from across this really wide network across the country. And this enables us to sort of monitor what's going on and sort of compare the labs and their test performance. But it allows us to identify whether we should help any labs perhaps tweak their approach to improve their comparative performance, which means I think that we're able to ensure a more robust testing solution more evenly across the country.
0: So it's really a collaboration amongst the network right and uh, yeah it really keep, is yeah keep improving as you go that we do since you created this open source protocol it allowed you to build up this live direct network of labs i understand you have over 180 labs using the live direct method do you have any sense or how many tests the network has performed through the pandemic?
1: We've actually now formally designated 190 labs around the U.S. Awesome. to test with saliva direct. So those uh, the labs do keep coming into us. You know, even, even if we see that testing demand in some areas are going down, we are still finding that labs are interested in taking this on. The actual number of labs testing with saliva direct does vary depending on local demand. And there are some labs who have access to the EUA who have never actually run a test, But they have it there should they need it in an emergency as it's just so easy, as I said, for them to quickly set up should the need arise. Over the pandemic, we've received probably testing data from around 130 or 140 labs, I believe, who have so far reported over 7 million tests. However, it's quite likely that the actual number of saliva direct tests is well over 10 million. And that's due to some sort of like, you know, university labs, for example, who are using it for campus testing, but are falling outside of our regulatory purview.
0: Yeah, I think I had a chance to meet some of those folks when I joined your first annual SalivaDirect conference in July. It was really amazing. The stories I heard from people that were there trying to work to get labs set up in their campuses to get kids back to school, to get testing to rural and underserved populations. It was really incredible what people were doing to rally around the SalivaDirect method. We'll certainly have to bring some of those folks on here to share their stories, but what was one of the biggest things you took away from having all of those collaborators in one place? just
1: that so many people have given their absolute all over the past two and a half years and that they're not done giving yet. I mean, their story is already further cemented just how incredible they all are. But the energy that was in the room to continue building upon the massive collaborative efforts we have undertaken so far and to do even more for our communities around the countries was just so unexpected, but it's just so utterly inspiring.
0: It is all pretty incredible. But if if we step back a bit, you've been using saliva as a sample type throughout your research on pneumococcus bacteria, what first led you to consider saliva as a sample type for these diagnostics?
1: Well, the credit actually has to go to my brilliant PhD supervisor, Christoph Tijinsky. He had been reviewing literature from the early 1900s and found that the pneumococcus was actually first studied in saliva. In fact, it was even initially named due to its identification in saliva. So upon learning about their success of their work and that they had much higher rates of detection than we do in the present day, we wondered whether using saliva would have any effect on our current work. So What we did is we just went off to a local primary school. We collected a lot of spit. Being in the Netherlands, we cycled it back to the lab. (laughs) where We tested it and then we actually found much higher carriage rates in this healthy cohort of children than was actually typically thought to be in that age group. So from there, we went on to validate it in all age groups from infants through young adults, older adults and elderly. And in each case, it performed either as well as that gold standard nasopharyngeal swab or it greatly surpassed it.
0: And so when the pandemic came, how did you decide to transition your focus you know, from the pneumococcus studies to COVID. I did read an article early on in the Scientific American about your partnership with the MBA. Can you tell us more about it? And I certainly want to know more importantly, did you get to meet LeBron or any other famous NBA folks?
1: Sadly, no introductions. Well, as of yet anyway, but it's also not unlikely that we will have this but in our freezers still. <laughs> the transition from the pneumococcus to the pandemic was just that, I mean, from the get go, the pandemic just really captured my intention from very early on. It became all consuming. You know, at one point I was just spending the majority of my time talking with friends and family, trying to point them in the direction of balanced information. And at that time, I just I wanted to do all that I could to actually contribute to the pandemic response but I couldn't actually see a way and then I was actually asked to go into the lab one evening and compare the sample extraction methods that I had developed in my lab for processing saliva samples to the other commercially available tests in an effort to find a more sensitive test that we could use for SARS-CoV-2 detection and indeed when we ran the methods that I had been working with alongside these other kits that we were trying to you know see the potential for the SARS-CoV-2 detection in this approach that I was using was far superior and due to my experience with that my background in medical microbiology I was asked to then join the collaborative efforts of the Yale Impact Biorepository where we were trying to build up a sample set of a whole range of samples actually so you know nasopharyngeal swabs oropharyngeal swabs saliva samples urine blood and just build up this bank of samples that we could use to study SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 disease progression.
0: Wow. I bet it wasn't easy, right? And I understand, especially in the thick of it, there was a lot of roadblocks. People weren't necessarily believing in saliva, right? As you mentioned before, the nasopharyngeal swab is is what the FDA considers the gold standard. Can you tell us a little bit about why you think that is? And how were you able to overcome that?
1: Well, the main problem is that saliva is not a traditional sample type for testing for respiratory pathogens. This means that labs weren't equipped with the robust methods required for working with it. Unfortunately, they had to just try and adapt the various tests they had available for swabs and hope that they would work on saliva. But in many cases, those tests weren't actually efficient. So if you think about saliva as compared to that sort of nice, clear, thin liquid that you may have seen when you test with swabs, a saliva sample is very different. It varies greatly between people. It's a much more complex sample type and accordingly requires more intensive treatment options. So sadly, many people would try their methods, have them fail, and then say that saliva didn't work when in reality, it was simply the method itself that failed. And if they had actually tested with one of the very many methods that are actually out there and are successful for testing with saliva, they likely would have had equally great results. I think it's really important that people keep this in mind and be careful how they talk or present their work and recognize that there are many other key factors at play that can influence a test. And it's not fair to simply blame the type
0: it sounds like awareness is really a big piece of it right and and trying to make people more aware of the capabilities of saliva is is important there's a lot of a lot more literature out there today that we can point them to right that shows it can be successful mm. and certainly the aim of this podcast itself is to bring more awareness to saliva as a sample type so people can find the experiences and the stories and the great people like yourself that that are doing something about it but maybe bringing us up a level there seems to be a lot of great benefits to using saliva it's clearly less invasive it's fairly easy to collect for most of the population. With all the great things that saliva can offer, are there any other additional benefits that maybe are are more scientific that we're not aware of? Or why do you think some people are still opposed to it scientifically?
1: I think one of the first things that we need to do is to really highlight the methods that have had success. You know, we need to sort of narrow down the playing field a little bit. You know, we need to find the assays that have worked really well and standardize our approach. You know, we now know what works in terms of collection, you know, should you be diluting the sample or not? How how do the tests work? Yes or no on them, and if we could actually present a you know a standardized set of methods and being like, okay, we want you to have the option to see what works best in your lab in your setting, but from this array of protocols that have shown to work in all of these different settings, you know, take one of them and continue to expand on this further. Whether you are just following the same protocol and having the same success, or you're validating and optimizing it further and building upon its success, and I think that by just limiting the choice out there, or thereby limiting the chance that someone else has it failure and showing you know the full potential of what can be actually done here
0: yeah i think that's great in your opinion then can you share with us what you think is the future of saliva testing is the importance of it um any next steps what doors maybe have been open now that we've seen so much testing with saliva through the pandemic
1: Way wait to start um yeah. i think there's I mean, there's so much potential for it. I mean, I think first and foremost is just what we've demonstrated with Saliva Direct is just bringing down the price of testing and that testing does not have to be so expensive. It does not have to be so intensive that, you know, you can take a very basic protocol, which means that it's, you know, translatable to so many other settings where you don't necessarily have the most high-tech instrumentation available. You might not have the most robust supply chains and that you don't actually need it. You know, demonstrating that you can collect samples without cold chain transport, that you don't necessarily need to have, you know, expensive buffers and re agents to preserve your samples and actually they'll preserve themselves you know A lot of us gets to the fact that we can just make testing more accessible or more sustainable. We can have better surveillance systems in place. We can do much more regular sampling. I mean, people do not want to be having repeated nasopharyngeal swabs. I mean, even nasal swabs can get irritating after a couple of days. And so by having this new approach, I think there's a lot more that we can be doing to understand, you know, the true prevalence of respiratory pathogens out there in the community, understanding their dynamics of infection. I mean, we've learned so much over the course of the pandemic. We know so much about SARS-CoV-2, you know, no other virus has been studied in such detail down to, you know, what its sort of infection dynamics are, sort of what kind of, you know, sort of peaks you see and how the rates that it falls off. But why not now let's do that for the other viruses so that we can also better understand periods of infectiousness, um, you know, risk to others and how that also then translates to other sort of surveillance systems, like, you know, how you can couple this with other low-cost approaches such as wastewater surveillance and, you know, coupling the two for sort of surveillance but then outbreak control. So I think we've learned a lot. We now just need to take a moment to stop and look at what we have and how we can really bring these approaches together to learn more, but also sort of keep better tabs of what's going on out there in our communities.
0: What would you say are the next couple of virus or infectious diseases that you know we should be looking out for in saliva?
1: I mean, you know, recognizing from the get go that we were eventually going to see a return of our other major respiratory pathogens, which have largely disappeared for the last two and a half years. I mean, at the forefront for us is that we've been wanting to, since summer 2020, to include the likes of influenza, RSV and saliva direct. But, you know, it's one of those great things where it's great for the community that these viruses aren't (laughs) circulating, but it makes it very hard to develop assays when we don't actually have the samples to do so. So, I mean, we would still like to do that so that you could have a very, again, quick, cheap test to quickly discern, you know, what is the cause of the symptoms of this person who's, you know, presenting? um, What does that mean in terms of treatment what treatment can you get them earlier on for me being an academic i'm also very excited in terms of research potential so not just targeting viruses that we might be interested for clinical diagnostic purposes but you know what other viruses do we typically have out there circulating and understanding the interplay of those different viruses and the pathogens and what you see preceding another or what happens when you get infected with one and what happens following that so i'm very much looking forward to sort of applying this uh, to my research as well
0: that's great and certainly we 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 all can be hopeful that a lot more people are washing their hands now. One would hope. <laughs> but again, it was such a pleasure to catch up with you today. What's next for you and Saliva Direct?
1: Well, first of all, after all that we've done over the past two years for elevating saliva as a sample type for SARS-CoV-2, our first goal is to definitely get full FDA approval to make Saliva Direct long-lasting. However, ob- obviously, with Yale being an academic institution, it isn't set up to be a sponsor of a diagnostic assay. So we are working at the moment to form a nonprofit to house the Saliva Direct initiative and apply for full approval from there. Our other major goal is to really cement. The network that has formed around Saliva Direct over the past two years. I mean, we've brought together so many different partners, whether hospitals, uh, private labs, non profit labs, academic institutions, you know, whether it's testing directly with Saliva Direct or even just our shared interest with Saliva as a sample type overall. I mean, not only do we have these 190 labs who can test with Saliva Direct, we have a network of about 750 partners that span across the country. But maybe even more importantly, what we're really wanting to do is find ways to cement this network that has just evolved around the saliva direct test. I mean, I think that was one of the most inspiring things that I also saw. I wasn't expecting this network to come up where, you know, we meet on a regular basis. We just, as you mentioned, had this fabulous conference and just recognizing that there are so many people who are still willing to collaborate. I think it's really important for us to, you know, really cement this to continue to work together because what we've seen over the course of the pandemic is that when we work together collaboratively, we could achieve achieve so much more than we do when squirreling away, working on our own things, you know, coming out with a big splash in the research. But if we're actually much more open about what we're doing, we do combined efforts, you know, you share the research efforts across, you know, several institutions, um, we can gain so much more knowledge and we can push forward on so many more things more quickly. And so a, yeah. you know, just seeing that engagement at the conference and knowing how much that we've achieved already together, I'm really looking forward to seeing what else we can be doing together as this Saliva Direct
0: Network. I agree. Coming out of that conference, it was really evident how collaborative everyone wanted to be and how, how much they wanted to keep it going. So I look forward to continuing to be part of that conversation and certainly to the next annual conference, but certainly engaging between now and then right, w- with the network. And so if people want to reach you uh, to support your research or the Saliva Direct initiative, we'll certainly post a link in this episode's show notes, which you can find on our website at www.spititoutpodcast.com. So they can join the network or reach out to you for, for further questions. And thanks so much for joining us today. It's been great diving into the Saliva Direct story and to understand how you've built such an impactful program and now an organization. I look forward to having you back and hearing about your future successes. And for all of our listeners, I hope you enjoyed a glimpse into the world of saliva diagnostics, why it can be so powerful and what work is still left to be done. Thanks for listening to the Spit It Out podcast. I'm your host, Avi Robbins. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on our journey to raise awareness about saliva diagnostics, the future of healthcare, and hear stories from some really awesome industry and academic leaders.